Judah earlier, um, the scripture says that the entrance of, of thy life, it's the entrance, not the presentation. So if I don't do so good, presenting, it's all in how you take it in. That's the key. The onus is on you. <laughs> if you absorb his word, it will give you life. We're in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, which we were supposed to be in last week, but didn't actually get to Acts chapter 4. But we will this week. This one, I'm going to stick with my, my plan here today, Lord willing. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your, uh, for your precious word. We thank you that it does, it does give us life. And we thank you for how it, the kind of life it gives us. It's not just a, a chemical uh, that action that keeps on, you know, breathing and that sort of thing. But it gives us life with meaning, with purpose. It gives us uh, life with with discipline. And uh, Father, we thank you for the life, the kind of life that you give us in Christ. It's eternal. And we pray that you'll bless us this morning as we look into your Word, and may. Uh, the, the truth of that verse be fulfilled in our hearts this morning that, that your word would enter and, uh, and, and life would result uh, you'd enhance you'd, you'd foster the, the wonderful life that you've given us in Christ so we pray for your blessing uh, that's the main that's the crux of it we're looking to you oh God to bless us this morning now we, we trust you we we, 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 believe, we believe that you are our God, living God in our midst, and that you are a rewarder of all those that diligently seek you. You are good to us, as we sang a little bit ago. Good gifts, good gifts come down from above. Every good gift and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Thank you, our God, for how you are to us. And we commit our, 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 ourselves to you and to your hands this morning again. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> you remember, of course, in Acts chapter 3, the lame man was healed congenitally lame. He had been lame from birth. Peter and John go into the temple. They take him by the right hand, and in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And, uh, and immediately his ankle bones and leg bones received strength. He began walking and leaping and praising God, entering into the temple with the apostles, and caused quite a stir. And then Peter explained, well, this isn't by me or us, uh, but it was by, it was in his name, verse 8, 16, it says, in, and his name, the name of the Lord Jesus, his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And it was a, it was a, and Peter goes on to remind them and, and, to, and to tell them or show them that this miracle was a sign confirming once again the purposes of God. First of all, in saving our souls and bringing refreshment to us from our misery of sin and of, under curse, but also pointing to the restoration of all things the restoration of all things which God has purposed and determined through Christ Jesus. And that, he said, you can get in on that if you repent of your sins and be converted. Um, so that was the direction that he took, and he took them. Um, he says, uh, verse 26 of that chapter, unto you first, speaking to the Jewish audience there, unto you first, I like that because that means there's going to be someone, there's going to be a second. And I'm in the second. <laughs> I'm part of the second. And to you first, but also then to the Gentiles, is implied. 
unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. The Jews had that first opportunity, but then it came on, passed on down to us, which we'll get to later in the book, Lord willing. I don't know if we'll ever get that far, but if we ever did, you'd see it there. And having said that, that wonderful proclamation, um, God is offering his blessing through Jesus Christ. In raising Christ, he's offering his blessing to you through him. To you Jews, uh, that's when the enemy comes in. Enter the enemy, chapter 4. Let's let's read this chapter as far as we're hoping to go, and uh, and then look at it more closely. Chapter 4, verse 1. As they spake unto the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Albeit many of them which heard the word believed. The number of the men was about 5,000. It came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name, excuse me, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined by the good deed done unto the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him, does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they uh, conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge you. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle healing was showed. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, and said, Lord, thou art God, which hath made heaven and earth and the sea, and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage, and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and and the people of Israel, were gathered together 
for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spake the word of God with boldness. We'll stop there. Enter the enemy. Paul's, or Peter's marvelous message, a message, uh, an invitation for mercy and grace from God, for blessing from God, an invitation to, uh, to be converted, to repent and be converted, to be changed. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't need that? Who doesn't long for something new and real in us? Who doesn't ache with the, the evidence of the sin and our, na- our sin nature, our fallen condition? I mean, anybody, anywhere, we're all burdened with a sense of guilt and a sense of disappointment in what we are. And here is the offer for a conversion for refreshing from God and an anticipation of a future restoration of all things to God. And uh, wow, what a, what a marvelous message the gospel is and how pertinent it is for every, every human being. It's just right on target, isn't it? Spot on is this gospel message. For the need of man is genuine. And the offer of salvation, even more genuine. It's a beautiful thought. But this enemy, this enemy, the enemy of the souls of man, <clears throat> they are offended. They are offended by the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The enemy, there's no surprise that the enemy shows up because the Lord Jesus had warned the disciples in the last few days before he was, uh, before, and that the, even the night of his uh, betrayal and, uh, and so forth, he said that the world, the world hates you. Those are his words. John 15, 18, and 19. The world hateth you. And in verse 20, he says, they will also persecute you. I'm just grabbing little spots out of what he said. You know, you can read those verses in chapter 16 and verse 2. They'll put you out of the synagogues. They'll kill you thinking that they're doing God's service. If the world, uh, in the world, he said in verse 33 of 16, in the world you, you will have persecution. Make no, don't be surprised when the enemy shows. <clears throat> because the hatred and scorn of the enemy of the world for you uh, is not going to change. Who were the enemies that showed up? Well, it says here that they were the priests, first of all. The priests, wow, evidently, evidently the priests were not a part of those 3,000 that repented and were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ back there on the day of Pentecost. Evidently, there weren't the priests uh, involved in that, at least not the high priest, right? <clears throat> they led uh, they led the charge these high priests in particular they led the charge to crucify the Lord and to suppress the truth of his resurrection also if you remember they're the ones that came concocted this, the goofy idea that they could pay off the soldiers and, 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 uh, and, and suggest that the disciples had stolen his body away and and, and, uh, and, and came up with a, with a concocted story. It was theirs. <clears throat> so they're trying constantly to suppress the truth and to hide the facts. Should have been, they should have been those who uh, were the ones, they were the priests chosen from among men so that they might have compassion on men's needs so that they might have empathy to the, to the problems and the troubles and the difficulties of humanity and, and be able to present the love and compassion of God to, these, to the suffering people, 
suffering under sin. That's what the priesthood is for. That's why they, but not these guys. This has been hijacked. The priesthood has been hijacked. And uh, they are actually suppressing the truth in every way they can so that they might maintain power to oppress the people of God. That's uh, what has happened here now. And they're going to try and continue that that, uh, course of action. The captains of the temple were also involved. I don't know who the captain of the temple is. Uh, I don't see any temple captain office in the scriptures. (laughs) This is something that evidently they invented. They came up with this office. And there's always going to be... a proliferation of official positions under human ideas of government. They like to make more offices. They like to expand bureaucracy. They like to, you know, because there's always more men that want to be in charge than there are uh, offices to fill them. And so you make up a few more offices, and I think that's something like happened here with the captain of the temple. I suppose, presumably, the captain of the temple should be somebody that is trying to maintain the, the the holiness, the sanctity of the temple, and keep out riffraff and, and error and mistakes, you know, people that shouldn't be in there, poor, lame people. They stay outside the gate, right? Because these the captain of the temple has a certain charge. That's his jury. Well, they are probably the enforcement arm of the priests, I suppose. And uh, <clears throat> though the priest was a God-ordained office, it had been hijacked to not present the truth of God, but to suppress the truth of God so that they might not free the people of God, but they might oppress and continue to hold down the people of God and keep them in bondage. That's what the priesthood has become. And the captain of the temple, no doubt, is his arm of execution, the, the enforcement side of the priesthood the priesthood of course themselves would not get their hands dirty in actual enforcement and so they make another office that they can uh, exercise that kind of authority you know they wouldn't go into the judgment hall and defile themselves they wanted to keep that kind of an idea Um, It seems that whenever ecclesiastical authority is coupled with civil enforcement, you've got persecution of the followers of Jesus every time and everywhere in the world and in history. We've seen it happen again and again. Ecclesiastical authority and uh, coupled with some sort of enforcement mechanism is a a recipe for persecution. I'm very glad... As I was thinking about this, and it's been always been it's always been a delight to me that uh, that <clears throat> we don't have an ecclesiastical structure taught in the New Testament. I thank God for that. Men are not in charge of the church. Praise God, because whenever it is that way, this what you see here happens. It just goes that way, and you've seen it even in Christendom. You have set up human authority structure system and imposed it upon the church, and almost always it's a robs the people of God of their of their privileges and of their uh, right to expression, their rights to worship, their rights to connection. It actually keeps people from God. That's what ecclesiastical bureaucracy even in Christendom, has proven to be from the get-go, from whenever they introduced this whole idea of bishops over churches and things, way back when, who was it, Ignatius or Polycarp or something, that was bishop of Ephesus. Hogwash, it's unbiblical. It's not only not in the Bible, it's contrary to what is in the Bible. The Lord Jesus says, you are all brethren, we have one head, And he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the highest authority of all authority, our authority in the church. But you on earth are all brethren. That's what the Lord taught. And 
Let's keep it like that. Let's keep it simple like that. A professionally trained, ordained, and salary-maintained clergy staff is not only not taught in the New Testament, it's contrary to, and it is damaging to the, to the church of God, to the people of God. It robs the people of God of their freedom in Christ. So I get a little bit on my soapbox there, I guess. <laughs> I can't help it. I've seen it. Now, I'm not sitting in judgment on my brothers and sisters who are caught up in that system of Christianity, the way Christianity has that system fostered upon them uh, everywhere. And I know that there are many uh, godly believers that are, that are what I think, they're stuck in that. Um, but I don't judge them, I judge the system. The system that's been imposed on Christianity is not of God then where else does it come from? At best, it's from the flesh of humanity. At worst, from Satan himself. I got a little carried away on that. (laughs) Anyway, the other group of enemies is these Sadducees. Uh, They apparently were the ruling party in the day. There's two parties, of course, and almost any kind of democratic society, and I guess they had kind of a democratic society in those days, right? Yeah, the, there was in those days the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees apparently got voted out. Oops. Oh, they'll work harder and uh, bribe better, and they'll probably get back in next time. Who knows? You know how it works. These two-party systems are always working the system to get in power, to be in power, to stay in power, at this point in time, it was the Sadducees that happened to be in power. They're the liberals. <laughs> They're the liberal party, uh, which I think is kind of interesting. <laughs> they, you know, supposedly they have the interest of the poor in mind. But oh boy, it sure offended them that this poor man was healed of his of his of his malady of his. Uh, of his lameness, that sure, that just irked them. <clears throat> oh, the left wing politically, whether whether it's Sadducees as it is in this case, the Sadducees, or whether it's the Democrat Party as it is in our sad situation, the left wing believe that the government is the god of the people. That's kind of their philosophy. If you want to boil down their po- the left-wing policy, God is the people's God. I mean, the government is the people's God. And, uh, and so the laws that they want to have and the policies that they want to put in place is designed to foster that idea and, uh, and, and control the people. Their, <clears throat> their laws are... They, they want to be the... The government is supposed to provide everything that's needed by the people and take care of them and people so that they might control them and maintain control over them and oppress them. That's, that's what the left is all about. The right wing, which would be the Pharisees in the case of, uh, of those days, the right wing, they, believes, they believe that the individual is God himself. He's his own God. That's kind of their policy and program. And, and so they like to have laws that protect our freedoms so that we can be as big a God as we want to be, you know, take care of our freedoms. And that's kind of the right wing's idea on things. Uh, both of them hate the, thought, the doctrine, the truth of the resurrection because, because it's contrary to what they want. Both sides are violently opposed to the gospel because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the indisputable confirmation that both beliefs are dead wrong. There is what true God who is sovereign over all, even over life and death, and we will all answer to him one day. And, our, and so... The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate inconvenient truth 
for human government. Just, it's just an inconvenient truth because it, it is an indisputable that, that God is and that he will judge based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so both parties, it doesn't matter which ones, it happens to be the Sadducees in this case, they are violently opposed to the gospel because of the truth of the resurrection which they cannot deny. So they assemble themselves together, we see. Uh, wow. They, uh, they, it came to pass in verse 5 and 6 that they, they assembled the rulers and the elders and the scribes and Annas, the high priest himself, and Caiaphas. Now, in John's gospel, we read that Caiaphas was a high priest and it explains that Annas was his father-in-law, I think is the way it is. So, you know, it's a family affair, this whole priesthood thing. It's not whether or not you're qualified to be a priest or ordained, it's who you know. It's a relationship, and that's true of almost any government in power. It's more important to have a right relationship, a relationship with the right people, and then, then qualification. So you can have completely incompetent and unqualified people in ruling places in the country, as we have seen in our own personal experience. It all depends on who you know. Anyway, uh, they assembled the big guns, didn't they? They put it, I mean, Annas and Caiaphas, even John and Alexander, whoever in the world they were. We don't know anything about those two men. Uh, maybe they're the captain of the temple. I don't know. Uh, we don't know them, but you can be sure that everybody there knew them. <laughs> they were big names. Well, Luke records that these guys were there. And so they, they, were, they were top, they were big shots. They had a lot of authority. What they said was important. And so everybody in Judea knew who they were. And all of this huge assembly of the most important and powerful people in the land are assembled together for what purpose? To interrogate two Galilean fishermen. Are you kidding me? I mean, do you see what they're doing? This is like a classic example of super uh, intimidation practice. This is how the enemy is going to operate. They use, they use intimidation. That's kind of their first weapon against the truth. And when they come together, they, they, they begin their interrogation with this with this super direct question. I mean, they go right for the juggler. At first, when I read it, I thought, well, that's kind of a stupid question to ask because it just opens the door for Peter. But they, don't, but they, they think they're dealing with two fishermen, two humble men. And so they've assembled the big guns for great intimidation. They go right for the heart of the thing. They're going to smash this thing down. They go with a direct question right it's like it's like going for the juggler it's like they're just gonna they're just gonna overwhelm these people with intimidation and just shock and awe and put this thing down right now thinking they have these two fishermen shaking in their sandals as it were they open this examination with a question that's just a direct hit but they made a tactical error didn't they they didn't expect what, they, what we read in verse 8, they didn't calculate on this, that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops, they overlooked that. They had no concept of the Spirit of God. Well, Sadducees, they don't even believe in a spirit. But they're finding out that he's real. They're finding out that he's, that he's very real. And he fills Peter and Peter's answer to them is just like it knocks them, knocks them right off of their chairs. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Instead of suppressing the truth, they threw the door wide open for the explanation of the truth in no uncertain terms, in a beautiful message that Peter gives to them. Wow, look at how, look at how Peter takes this thing They're the accused. Peter is the accused in this case. 
But by the time he gets done talking in just two or three sentences or several sentences, he's turned the table completely around. And the people sitting behind the bench that think they're such big shots find themselves guilty. They're sitting in the seat of the accused. You crucified him. <laughs> and uh, God raised him from the dead. You are on the wrong side. And I think they got the point, right? You're, this is a stone that you builders have rejected. He's made the head of the corner. And then this, I'm, I'm just really thankful for the way uh, Peter uh, did that. And I'm thankful, I guess we should be thankful for the Sanhedrin and their, uh, their blunder in asking the question the way they did. Because it gave us verse 12. Isn't that a, a beautiful verse that we have often uh, used in gospel work from, from then on? They've opened the door to, to explain, to proclaim the gospel through the name of Jesus Christ for thousands of years now. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What a marvelous verse. What a beautiful expression. Thank you, Sanhedrin, for your, for your ignorance and, and miscalculation of who you're dealing with. In verse 13 it says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Evidently they considered themselves quite the opposite of that. I mean they're the learned and they're the intelligent, the intelligentsia of the country. And they have great perception. They see that these two guys you know, they're nothing. They're unlearned. They've never been taught. Uh, they're ignorant. And the word is, in the Greek, idiotis. Idiotis, or idiot. <laughs> Where we get our English word idiot. Although it doesn't really imply in the Greek, uh, uh, the way it's used in the Greek, it doesn't imply stupid. It just means that you're just not in the know. You're not in the know. You're not with the people that know stuff. You're, you're kind of a sort of a backwater guy. So these, they, they, they perceive that these guys are nobodies. And then they also perceive this. They've been with Jesus. Isn't that something? How the Lord Jesus can take nobodies. Nothing is as unlearned and ignorant and confound the wisdom of those that think they're so smart. And they are smart. They're so trained. And they are schooled. But wisdom and knowledge and understanding and intelligence comes from God. Almost, I think it was about 100, about 85 years ago, a long time ago. I was, we were uh, back in the days in our Fargo. We would go out door to door. We had a door to door program, and we would, some of us would get together and we'd go out door to door and we'd, you know, try and reach people. Uh, and one of the fellows that just wanted to go, he wanted to belong. You wouldn't have expected it of him. He was a simple man. I mean. We would call him a mentally handicapped man. Jerry Perkins was his name. He's, long, he's, he's with the Lord for many years now, so uh, I can use his name. With, and he's, uh, but he was a. He, he couldn't. He never really learned to read. He was just a, a backward little kid. Uh, you know, like uh, I don't. Know, how do you describe him? We used to call him retarded, but that word is not necessarily not allowed anymore. But I've known a few of these men like this in my in my years, and Jerry Perkins wanted to go out door to door with us and wanted to be a part of that. He was a, he was he was so simple. I mean, he got so he could kind of almost read a little bit, only because people read 
the verse in the scriptures, and he tried to follow along. So they, from the Bible, he tried. They, he kind of almost started to learn to read. One time, we were talking about something. Uh, I, I don't remember what it was, but he said, "Yeah." The, he said, "He he butted in. It wasn't easy for him because he was very very bashful." Uh, he butted in a little bit. He says, it's in the Bible. I know it's in the Bible. Well, is it, Jerry? I said, and I thought, no, this is how. And yes, he says, I'll show you. And so he opened up his Bible. And he got to, uh, you know, he had a Bible where every so many pages they put a glossy color print, you know, thing in there, a picture of a painting or something like that. And he opened it up and see, right there it was on that print that showed what he was. See, here it is. It's in the Bible. I thought, now that. Faith like a little child. I, you, you don't need to be intelligence, uh, smarts, <laughs> wisdom. It's a gift from God. It's not a chemical thing. It's just a wonderful thing to realize. These were ignorant men. These were unlearned and ignorant men. And it made these other men, who were very learned, very schooled and very connected with the intelligentsia, they had to marvel. These men have been with Jesus. I'm wondering about the time, but I'm going to... I want to just take a little aside. This is something that I, you probably don't care about so much, but you see how they, this is Caiaphas, as they, con, as they contemplate these guys, these two men, Peter and John, they say, no, these two guys are unlearned and ignorant men. When I read this and I, and I think about this study, I go back in my mind on, on the, when the Lord was arrested and taken off to the house of Caiaphas, the Caiaphas' palace for that kangaroo trial that they had. And it says Peter followed and another disciple, and doesn't name who he is. And that other disciple was known of Caiaphas. He was known by Caiaphas, and so he could go right into the palace. But then he came back and let Peter in. And over the years, it's been presumed that that was John. It couldn't have been. It couldn't have been. This text is just, says to me, Caiaphas didn't, he didn't get there and say, John, old boy, what are you doing? He didn't treat John like he knew. He didn't know John. John didn't know, he wasn't known of the high priest in, in Judea, in Jerusalem, this Galilean. That's not possible. Anyway, that's an aside. This just is one little text that I say, this is another proof what I think is along with several others that say, no, nah, it couldn't have been John. It was some other disciple. It doesn't say who. Probably because, and this is another argument that I have in my mind, if it were John, then John's denial of the Lord that night was worse than Peter's. Because at least they suspected Peter was a follower of Jesus. But if it were John, then nobody even suspected I'd say John's denial was worse. And we always think of Peter, the great denier. And yeah, it was terrible what he did. But what about John? If that were John, it wasn't John. It wasn't John. The rest of sure. That's in my opinion, just an opinion. Uh, it's not going to change your salvation one iota. <clears throat> well, uh, their second question that these uh, that the sanhedrin this this assembled group of big shots their second question was not to peter and john their second question was to themselves what are we going to do with these guys they're more than we can handle they're more than we can refute oh that's too bad that that was their second question was an opportunity there to ask the real question that they should have asked. They should have asked like the people that listened to the, the sermon on Pentecost and they were pricked in their hearts and they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
Not with these men, but with our sin, with our guilt before God. What shall we do? How can we escape the wrath of God? Yes, we crucified the Messiah. They should have asked that question. They were not pricked in their hearts. They were hard-hearted. They said, what are we going to do with these guys? We need to suppress the truth. We need to hold these guys down somehow. We can't let this out. We're determined to foster a lie, and we know it's a lie. What a sad response. These men, they think they're so smart, they're so educated, they're so stupid. If you've ever heard of ignorant, here is ignorance. It's a determination to follow a lie and to prosper. A proper a lie against the truth. They'll suppress the truth. Now there's ignorance. And they were accusing the apostles of being ignorant. Shame on them. All they could think of was how can we suppress this? How can we continue to maintain our authority charade? The only answer they could come up with was more threats. They couldn't be intimidated by our presence and by our uh, by this great a company of, of big shots. They couldn't be scared off by by that show. Then we'll get physical. We'll threaten them with physical punishment and harm. And 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 it goes that way. It's intimidation turns to threats, and ultimately will turn to real persecution the next time they see them they'll whip them and and so forth so it goes and so the age has gone Peter's response is a beautiful one isn't it he says uh, verse uh, verse 19 answered and said unto them Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than to God judge you, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, that's a good question. I mean, that's good. it's a good response. We ought to contemplate that for ourselves. We ought to obey God, says Peter. You know that. We ought to. We must. We are mandated We must obey God rather than man. His word, God's word, trumps any other authority or government or not. All authority comes from God. And so authority that goes against God has lost its legitimacy. Simple as that. And so we need to contemplate our own stand, it seems to me. Do we obey God? Do we fear men? In the context of being a witness for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the second thing that Peter says is we can't help but witness to what we've seen and heard. We can only report what we what we personally have seen and heard. You can't hold that against us. Do you want us to tell lies? You want us to make up a story? No, we're not going to do that. We can only report what we know firsthand. We've seen it. We've heard it. That's a true testimony. A testimony is to, to, to say what you've seen, what you know, what you have experienced. You don't need to go deep into theology. You don't need to go up, keep up with the latest apologetics. Just tell people what Jesus has done for you. What? <laughs> What God has said to you and spoken to you out of his word. That's all you have to do. What have you seen and heard? The man born blind admits, there's some things I don't know, but this I do know. Once I was blind, now I see. A good testimony. A solid testimony. That's what Peter says. All All we can do is tell you what we have seen and heard. Well, second intimidation clearly didn't work. And when the disciples were let go, 
It says in verse 23 that they went to, it says, their own company. Verse 2, they went to their own company and reported all the chief priests said and so forth. Do we view the church like that? Our local church is our own company. It's our own personal company that we go to when crisis comes, when difficulties show, when problems arise, when we're in trouble, we run to our company of people, our believers, the, the local church. That's our, is that our view then? Uh, and, and what is the church's view? There, there was the church, and in comes Peter and John to report what had happened to them. Uh, and how they had been uh, set uh, before the Sanhedrin and questioned and so forth and the threats that they have received. Uh, the church was not afraid to be associated with them. No, much on the contrary. Their response was, we'll pray. We'll pray. Let's pray about this. Let's pray together. There's a church, the local church prays. With needs arise, when crises come up, they're first on their knees, they're fast on their knees. They fly to heaven. Interesting prayer. We don't have time, I suppose, but maybe we should just quickly look at uh, how, and of course the Lord said, uh, my house, which is the local church, should be... A house of prayer, that's what it is. That's what God wants. And so these people prayed, and what did they pray like? It's just kind of an interesting uh, prayer to consider as a sort of a model, maybe. Uh, verse 24, well, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Lord, thou art God, which has made the heaven and the earth. The first thing they do, they open their prayer with a magnifying God. They express what they know of the greatness of God and what he has done. He created all things, heaven and earth. See, they don't need to tell God that. He, th- he, he knows that. No, but what they are doing is they're giving expression in their heart of what they think of God, what, what they know God to be. This is, what me, this is what we need, a God who controls all things, who has made all things. That's you, our God. And so they come to him with a magnification of God. Our prayer should be, oh, that's a wonderful way to open our prayer is to magnify the person of God. And and then in verses 25 and 26, they quote scripture to God. It was his his word, (laughs) but they're quoting it to God in their prayers. Look at, this is what David said. This this applies to our situation, oh God. They quote the scriptures to God. That's a beautiful thing to do. Uh, Pray the scriptures. uh, And and so if if the scriptures... The, the word of God has become your food and is, is so much a part of your thinking and the way you think, then it will be quite natural for you to express many of your prayers by using the very expressions that are found in the word of God themselves and referring to it uh, frequently. And then 27 and 28, they remember the work of Christ and the value of that work. Uh, and that is, uh, that is important, isn't a, part, uh, a component to prayer is always remind ourselves and come back to that because all of our crises, all of our issues of life, they all find their source of help and comfort in the cross. That's the solution. That's the solution to everything. And so they, they remember the work of Christ and the value of that work. And then in verses 29 and 30, they finally present their request to God, asking him to respond, even if it is a, a supernatural intervention that they're asking for that's okay they, they, but they're not telling God exactly what to do just please just please do what you would do in meeting our needs uh, signs and wonders if possible I wish we could pray for that today maybe we should I don't know <laughs> wouldn't it be wonderful yes we're at the we're at the wrong end of the age I suppose but man, that would be something. We, God will do inter- supernatural things. We can trust God for doing supernatural things. We can believe in God to do things that are beyond the scope and possibility of humans, of us. 
And our prayers ought to ascend to that level of seeking God for the things that we just cannot reach. And then they concluded their prayer by making the the wonderful connection to the name of Jesus Christ. You see how they conclude their prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's kind of, in some respects, I appreciate the, the concern about that appendix as almost it's used almost like an appendix almost like a little formula in the name of Jesus we're praying and yet I guess maybe we should not have a knee-jerk reaction completely and remember the fact that our prayers are grounded in and founded in and authorized by that wonderful name of Jesus and as long as we're uh, owning owning that absolute dependence upon the name of Christ and the authority in that name, as we pray, I don't think we're doing any harm by adding in Jesus' name. But but we should know what we mean when we say that, yes? They added it. They concluded their prayer with that precious name of Jesus. And... Evidently, God heard. This place was shaken. And the best best result of all, right? It would be wonderful to have the place shake, maybe. In this old building, ah. But the wonderful thing is they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Immediate answer. They got an immediate answer to prayer. The signs that they asked for, the wonders that they asked for, they come to. Not maybe as they are expecting, which we will see in the next chapter. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace. And and thank you that you are real. You are living and in our midst and and you care about us and uh, that we can pray and face. According to our our need, Father, thank you for this little meditation in your Word, and we pray that you'll bless it again, as we have as we have asked already. We continue to look to you in Jesus' name.